So last week, we began a series looking at the miracles of the New Testament. Pastor Josue uh, walked us through the very first recorded miracle of Jesus in John 2 that took place at the wedding in Cana, water being turned into wine. But let's be honest. We're talking about the God-man, Jesus Christ. Of course he can perform miracles. In our 21st century evangelical American minds, we hear of such miracles and, and tell ourselves such things only took place when Jesus walked on the earth and won't take place again until he returns. Miracles, to us, are something that happened then, but don't happen now. You know, this would have been a, a very easy frame of mind for the disciples to have fallen into. And yet, in Acts 3, we see two of Jesus' disciples, after his ascension, after he has left them, take a very different approach. Look at Acts 3. Peter and John are headed up to the temple. Our first verse says it's the ninth hour. 3 p.m., the day is sort of winding up. Keep in mind what you and I know as the church is a new concept for Peter and John. At this point, the church is 99% Jewish, and so to participate in corporate worship, the place to go is the Jerusalem temple. Thus, here we are at the Temple Mount, when in verse 2, a new character enters the scene. Look with me, verse 2. And a man lame from birth was being carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. This man is lame. He has some form of paraplegia, no use of his legs, and so he spends his days begging. More than this, our text says in verse 2 that he's lame from birth. He's actually never known personally what it means to walk. People in the temple probably know him. Someone brought him to this beautiful gate, a gate that, that was different from all of the other gates in the temple because this gate shined with bronze. But it was different for another reason, too. You see, this gate was the gate between the court of women and the court of the Gentiles. Thus, th this man sits at the place that separates, separates the Jew from the non-Jew. As you picture this scene, you might perhaps picture a Gentile, a non-Jewish person, will be moved on occasion in their heart to give something to this poor, lame man. But for the Jewish person, almsgiving was actually an expected part of temple practice. The law of Moses actually commanded the Israelites that they were to have no poor among them. So when they see a man who is begging at the place that separates Jew from Gentile, they would consider it a duty. Not only that, but, but a mitzvah, a blessing, to meet this man's needs. So, use your imagination with me. Come back 2,000 years, close your eyes if you need to, and take a seat and rest your back against that beautiful bronze gate. See people walking by, headed into the temple, and feel a desire in yourself to join them. But know that your legs could never take you with them. Are you there with me? You've asked person after person to give you relief from your troubles, anything to help you pay your rent, get something to eat. Occasionally, a group stops, and then another one group passes by. You're calling out, asking, alms for the poor? 
And as you look into the crowd, you hear a voice beside you say, look at us. This is verse 4 of our text. Look at us. A, a phrase that was packed with meaning for you. Someone saying look meant that they had something to give. This is one less meal that you'll have to skip. And so, of course, you give this person your full attention. You listen attentively, says verse 5, expecting to receive something from them. Do you see that? The man speaks in verse 6. He starts off, he says, I have no silver and gold. And likely, uh, you're confused now, maybe even angry every time a person stops and frees others to walk by. I imagine in your anger, you might say, sir, <laughs> I'm not here to make conversation. This is my livelihood. Can you get out of my way so I can get back to begging? But this, command, this man commanding you to listen doesn't let you have the opportunity to speak. He continues. He says, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Wow. This is the point where you probably look both ways and ask this man, are you cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs? You think, of course this man has no silver or gold. He is unstable. What is he thinking? And you'd likely think a bunch of other mean things too, but you don't have time to focus on that because this strange man whom you've never seen before, keep that in mind, this man whom you've never seen before has grabbed you by the right hand, look at verse seven, and he, Peter, took him by the right hand and raised him up. A more accurate translation of the text might say, he pulled him up. <laughs> I can imagine with all the strength that you, you, know, you have in your upper body, you would try and shake him away as he's pulling at you. And in your anger, you might think, ooh, if I could, I would kick him. And just as you think of it, you realize you could do it. You've never felt this feeling before, but it's coming from below your knees. You feel your feet pressing against the ground. And that man who pulled you up has let you go. And for the first time in your life, your entire life, when someone has let you go, you haven't fallen. You can put one foot in front of the other. And you can do it fast. And you can jump and so you praise, and you don't care. Verse 8, it says, leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God, not caring what anyone's thinking. And as you jump and scream for joy, you can hear a man nearby maybe say to his wife, isn't that the supposed lame man I just gave 10 bucks to? Let me go see if I can get it back. And others in the temple who recognize you are filled with wonder and amazement as they look on at this jumping man whom they've seen seated helplessly at the same gate day after day for years and years and having experienced something so life-transforming. You know, do not know what else to do but to run back to that man who pulled you up and cling to him. Verse 11. Verse 11 says, He clinged to Peter and John. It's the word that's used to describe when a person is taken into custody by an officer. He's not letting go. He's holding on for dear life. What these men have, this man wants. And what is it? That's what I want to discuss today. What do we, no different from Peter and John, filled with the same Holy Spirit by the power of Jesus, have to offer? 
What do people driven by the gospel have to offer our world to cling to? Well, Peter and John say to this man, I, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. Here's where we're going today. Gospel-driven people regularly impart blessings better than gold to the lost and broken world that surrounds them. Today, I want us to see four blessings in particular that gospel-driven people impart. Because how I've understood this passage is that what these men give, we too, who would say that we're driven by the gospel, the good news of Jesus, are called to give wherever it is that we go in this lost and broken world. Look back with me at verses 4. Look there, verse 4, he says, And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold. What I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. What does Peter say he has? What does Peter say he gives? It's perhaps too simple so that we can just so often miss it. But, but gospel-driven people impart what they have. And what is it that, that Peter has? Well, if we look at the verse where we left off after the clinging, we see Peter in verse 12 speaking to the people who are standing around him in amazement. And he says, men of Israel, verse 12, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety, we have made this man walk? I love that. Because it tells us, in one sense, that the answer to this question, what do they have, is nothing. Nothing. Peter is clear from the very start. It's not because of this, it's not because of them that this has happened. It's not because they're so holy that this man has been healed. It's not because they spent an extra 15 minutes in their Bibles this morning. Or because we're really good at avoiding sin. It's nothing we have within us, Peter says. Look at verse 16 with me, if you would. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Do, do, do you see what did it? So maybe to say that Peter has nothing is inaccurate. Truly, Peter and John have everything because they have Christ. You've probably heard the math equation, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. You see, this is the first thing that gospel-driven people impart. They give what they have, and they recognize that all they have is Jesus' name. He wants them to know. He says, listen, people, you've denied this name, but there's good news. It's still available to you. Look at verse 17. Peter says, and now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed to you, Jesus. Peter says, you can have this too. You too can have everything. But first, you've got to have nothing. You've got to repent. That word repent in verse 19 has multiple meanings. But the key, I think, to that word is the word abandon. Abandon old thoughts. Maybe some thought he was a dangerous revolutionary. 
Others thought he was just a, a good moral teacher. To repent is to abandon old habits, to recognize I've been an idolater, worshiping sex, success, and self. To repent is to abandon old allegiances, to pledge allegiance to Christ's kingdom and his alone above all else. It's radical, I know it. But if it's true, we need it. And we need to give it. Heard a story of a, a young man who came to faith in Jesus and went home to, to tell his mother all about it. His mother said to him, just after hearing this radical testimony, said, son, I, I believe you've been brainwashed. The young man replied, mother, if you knew my brain, you would be glad that it was washed. <laughs> if this is all true, then we need washing. We need to repent. We need to abandon. Have nothing so that we might have everything and give this everything to the world. You see, gospel-driven people impart what they have, and all they have is Christ. And secondly, they impart healing. Healing. Did you see that? This man is healed. You see, it's important to see in this passage that this man is spiritually healed, yes. Under the old covenant, he was not able to enter the inner courts of the temple or participate in certain aspects of worship, but now he's restored. But don't forget, the text speaks of physical healing. Let's not miss this. It's probably the point that, let's just be honest, we most get uncomfortable with. Luke, who we know from history was a medical doctor, wants to stress this point so heavily to the extent that he uses overly medical terms to describe what happened when this man was healed. If you're looking at verse 7, look at verse 7. Underline where it says, feet and ankles. You see, those two words, feet and ankles, appear nowhere else in the New Testament. The only other place they occur is in ancient Greek medical books. They're the very technical terms for the bones around the ankle and foot. See, Dr. Luke wants us to understand exactly what's happening. It's a medical miracle. Even the word after it, leaping up in verse 8, has the connotation of a bone being popped back into its socket. This man is truly healed physically. It's important that we don't lose sight of this. See, just because Jesus isn't walking among us doesn't mean that we've advanced beyond the time of miracles. But in the 21st century, it's so easy to feel this way. I'm not the first one to say this, but I think it has a lot to do with our culture of self-reliance. There's a famous story of uh, the 13th century uh, philosopher and church priest, Thomas Aquinas. At the Vatican, he passed by Pope Innocent II, counting out a, a large sum of money in the treasury. And the Pope called out to Aquinas. He said, you see, Thomas, the church can no longer say, silver and gold have I none. Aquinas replied, true, true, holy father, but neither can she now say rise and walk. You see, self-reliance often does this. Self-confidence steals from our ability to see and experience miracles. But if we desire to be gospel-driven people, we need to change this. We, we need to be expectant of miracles. The theologian William Barclay lays out three conditions for experiencing miracles. He says, listen, you want to experience miracles? This is what you got to do. One, you have to have an eye that sees. Two, 
You need a spirit that's willing to, to make an effort. Three, you need an attempt at the hopeless. Friends, brothers, sisters, are you making an attempt at the hopeless? Because if we wait for the perfect set of circumstances, we're never going to try at all. If we, want him take, if we want to see a miracle, we have to take Jesus at his word when he calls us to attempt the impossible. Maybe there are things that you can think about right now that you or your children or your spouse or your friend or your neighbor is struggling through. How do you model for them an expectation of miracles? Do you pray with them when they break their arm or when they're sick or when they're worried about their finances or their marriage? Assuring them that God can work, that God can comfort, that he does hear the prayers of his people. It's a doctrinal issue, isn't it? Many of us just don't believe that God is truly all-powerful. Let me just come clean and say, <laughs> this is a struggle for me. Do I really believe that God can heal? If I did, it would change the tone, frequency, and even words that I spoke in prayer. Now, understand, especially as the pastor of disability ministries here, I'm not saying that you should look for every person in the church in a wheelchair and say, rise and walk. No, please don't do that. I don't think that that would necessarily be a good idea. You know, until recently, I worked for an organization called Johnny and Friends. Perhaps you've uh, heard of Johnny Erickson Tata, who, who founded the organization. She has quadriplegia, can't move her arms or legs, and she regularly has people come up to her and ask, they say, can we, can we pray for you that you would be physically healed? Johnny's response often catches people by surprise. She says, you know, it would actually be better for me now if you'd pray for my heart. Just pray that I would stop sinning. You see, Johnny recognizes that the healing of her legs and arms are already promised to her. When this life ends and she is face to face with her Savior, this, is, this promise will be granted. This is true for all those who know Christ. But for now, for all people, our greatest need for a miracle is for our hearts to be healed. For we who are dead in our sins to be called to life. Maybe some of you are wondering, how do I see these miracles? How do I give this healing? Here's a question to start with. Who are you praying for? Who are you coming alongside to introduce to the God of miracles and healing? Because gospel-driven people, they impart what they have. Gospel-driven people, they impart healing. Here's another one, though. Gospel-driven people, I love this. They impart joy. They impart joy. I hope you didn't miss that as we read our text. The man who was once a poor beggar is now the image of joy. Look at the man's response as, as he's healed in verse 8. Do you see that? First, he stood, then he walked, then he leaped, then he praises, then he clings. Do, do, do you feel the building excitement? This is joy. Quick point here. Gospel-driven people are supposed to be joyful. We're supposed to impart joy. There are times to mourn, but it's a time. Our typical disposition when we shift into neutral should be joy. Here's a good time to, to pause and ask, what does our lost and broken world receive from you? 
You see, when, when your neighbors think the word Christian, if you've ever told them of your faith or they've seen you walk and get ready for church in the morning, you are probably what comes to mind. So what do they think? Christians in part legalism, Christians in part sarcasm, cynicism, egoism, self-importance. I can't even begin to tell you how many times I've been beeped at, cut off, or flipped off by a driver in a car with a Jesus fish on the bumper. If that's you, you may want to consider removing the fish. Because when people see markers of the Christian faith, they should see joy. Irma Bombeck, uh, a well-known newspaper columnist, once wrote an op-ed in a local newspaper that I found very interesting. Here's what she wrote. It's going to be on the screens. She said, in church the other Sunday, I was intent on a small child who was turning around smiling at everyone. He wasn't gurgling, spitting, humming, kicking, tearing the hymnals, or rummaging through his mother's handbag. He was just smiling. Finally, his mother jerked him about, and in a stage whisper that could be heard in a little theater off-Broadway, said, Stop that grinning. You're in church. With that, she gave him a belt on his hind side, and as the tears rolled down his cheeks, added, that's better, and returned to her prayers. What must they think, these children? Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, while our faces reflect the sadness of one who has just buried a rich aunt who left everything to her pregnant hamster. Okay, she's, she's got a strange way of putting things, but reflect on it. The church... God's gospel-driven people are meant to be joyful. Where they go is meant to be joyful. You see, we have non-Christians that we interact with on a daily basis at work, in the PTA, in our neighborhoods. But for many of you, you have little pagans running around your homes every day. We all have them at least once a week here at church. How do you impart joy to them? How do we teach the children among us that the community of Christ is a joyful community? Well, let them smile. Let them make a joyful noise. Celebrate their joy while they are in church or while you're doing family devotionals. And don't squash it for anything. Listen, I know some Christians who practice the vegetables of the Spirit. Do you know them? You can find them in Second Opinions, chapter 3. Open up there if you'd like to. I'll read it for you if you can't find it. The vegetables of the Spirit are pleasantness, composure, and solemnity, dignified attitude, and seriousness. But the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. Don't miss the second one, joy. And don't miss the last one, self-control. And it's not talking to the kids. It's not telling them to control their joy. It's telling us to hold our tongues so we don't act as the wife of David who rebuked him when he danced through the streets when the Ark of the Covenant was brought to the city. It's the self-control that recognizes the beauty of undignity when we are overcome with joy. How foolish would it have been if a person were to approach the man who was healed, who was now leaping and singing in the temple, and said to him, oh, Please don't leap. You're in a temple. Oh, please keep your voice down. Uh, lower your hands. People are worshiping. The truth is, you know you could push his arms down, but they just go right back up. Why? Because he has something worth being joyful about. He is overcome. 
If you are a believer in Christ today, you have just as much to be leaping and singing about. You were once worse than unable to walk. You were once dead. That's how the Bible describes us. Dead in our trespasses, but Christ's spirit woke us to life. How could we not be joyful? And it's, it's really that simple. If you have joy, you will impart joy because people will want what you have. I mean, everybody, everybody, how many people here want joy? Max Licato uh, made the point really well. He writes, listen, everyone is looking for joy and marketing companies know this. Every commercial promises the same product. Want some joy? Buy our hand cream. Want some joy? Sleep on this mattress. Want some joy? Eat at this restaurant. Drive this car. Wear this dress. Every commercial portrays the image of a joy-filled person. Even Preparation H. <laughs> Before using the product, the guy frowns and squirms in his chair. Afterward, he is the image of joy. If you model joy, if you live joy, which really just means recognizing all that God has done for you and rejoicing in it, that joy will be imparted because people want it. So, friends, what are you imparting? Who are you emulating? Be like the lame man who is in the temple. Cling to everything Peter has, and friends, jump for joy. And you'll find that people will want to cling to all that you have. Okay, gospel-driven people impart what they have. Gospel-driven people impart healing. They impart joy. And one more. Gospel-driven people, oh, they impart wonder. They impart wonder. If we were gospel-driven people, we would impart wonder. You see, the, the people in Solomon's portico, the old regulars, as they looked, they, they could not believe it. They were amazed and astonished. Verse 11, look there, says, they were utterly astounded as they see this scene and run together to Peter and John to inquire about what happened and what it meant. So it is with gospel-driven people when they give joy and healing and good news. The, the word of God begins to move out. And to the world around them, there develops this sense of wonder. In the letter of 1 Corinthians, uh, the, Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul speaks to the church and says that those who are sent by God are a spectacle to the world. That word spectacle in Greek is theatron. It's the only Greek word I'm going to give you today. And every other word, uh, use of that word in the New Testament, it means theater. Those who are sent by God are to be a theater to the world. Now, personally, I love the theater. Last year, my wife and I went to see Aladdin for our anniversary. It was amazing. This past November, uh, we got nosebleed seats for Hamilton. It's all we could afford on my salary, but oh, awesome. Good theater is great, but bad theater, ugh. You see, the role of the actors in a production is to sell you on the story, to transport you to the world that the playwright created. A truly wonderful show will cause you to lose track of time. It'll pull at your heart and raise you, to, uh, raise you to your feet in joy at the curtain call. A bad show will irritate you. You'll sneak looks at your watch or phone. It will exhaust you with frustration, and you'll want to crawl out during intermission. But sometimes, sometimes, a good show 
just has bad theater. Uh, Rebecca and I went to go see a show last year that got amazing reviews on Broadway in New York. We went to the opening night of this production in Chicago. Same play, same set, same music, different actors. Now, some of the actors were good, but overall, it was Snoresville. The actors all knew their lines, the right things to say. They knew their cues, the musical notes, but they weren't all in it. They weren't sold on the role they were playing, and so they didn't sell the audience. Listen, those of you here who identify as Christians, are you all in? Are you playing the part? Have you allowed the choreography of Scripture and cues of the Holy Spirit to direct your life? Are you taking on the role of transporting people from this broken world to a world that is being restored in and through Jesus Christ? Listen, let's just be honest. A lot of us here sitting in this room can tend to be like the characters in that very, very boring play. We think on our life and ministry, and we feel bored. There isn't much wonder in it. I've heard it said that if you're bored with your faith, it's very likely that your faith is boring to God. Want to change that? Bless people with what you have. Bless people with the healing word of the gospel. Bless people with gospel joy. And I truly believe that that boredom will dissipate because you will have invested in that role that you were cast into. You see, Christians are not simply people who believe things. Some of you might think that. Sometimes I can, I can think that. But, but Peter says we are, are a people that's called to something, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. We're a people that does something, a people with a role. So volunteer for Summer Blast. Talk to Michelle Forheider about volunteering in the children's ministry. Speak to Pastor Larry about community outreach or Pastor Michael about investing in the lives of teenagers who need to see from seasoned saints that the joy and wonder of the Christian life should not gradually dwindle with time, but should exponentially increase as we delve further into an understanding of this new character that we're supposed to become in Christ. Because with this, with this, and only with this, gospel-driven people draw in the world and give blessings better than gold. Think for a moment on Jesus Christ. <laughs> Think of his life. He imparted joy. Think of his death. Through it, he imparted healing. Think of his resurrection. And they all stood in wonder. You see, this is the gospel we're supposed to be driven by. This is the only good news worth clinging to. Brothers, sisters, we need to give only what we have. Do you have him? Is he yours? If not, you can today. Come up after we close in our final song. Come speak to one of our prayer partners, and they will talk to you about how you can have what we have in Christ. You can have a blessing better than gold. If you'd say yes, then friends, give as he gives. Would you pray with me? Great physician. Miracle worker, reviver of life, fill us with joy so that we might overflow. Increase our faith so that we might see miracles and other great things. Overcome us with awe so that we might stand continuously amazed and call others to stand in awe of your glory. Keep us, Lord, always clinging to you.
We pray this in the healing, joyful, and wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.